Welcome to GalaxyCon Talks Comics with your hosts, Mike Broder and Patty Hawkins. Join us each week as we talk to some of the biggest names in the comic book industry, both past and present. Make sure to follow us online at GalaxyConTalksComics.com. Welcome to uh, GalaxyCon Talks Muppets. Normally, we're GalaxyCon Talks Comics, but today, we have a special guest, Patty. Absolutely. He is an incredible talent. Had him as a guest to the show several times. He has been involved in Star Wars, Star Trek, The Muppets, various other creative pursuits. He is a writer. He is a director. He is a creature maker. He is an all-around incredibly creative and fun guy. And uh, in his honor, I wear a Hawaiian shirt. Let's please welcome the legend and hero of a guy named Kevin Feige. We'll go into that a little bit because it's a really fun story. Please welcome Kurt Thatcher. Hey, guys. Ah! Oh, my God. What the Uh, hell? Yeah, coronavirus. It's... uh... No. Bear. Oh no. I, I, I know I've lost some weight. I hope uh I hope that's uh not too upsetting. Is this yeah. what happens when you work on the curious creations of Christine McDonald? Yes, actually, good call. This is from that. Hey everybody. This hey. is actually in an episode where she put a good Mike, um put a, a hat on a hat stand, and so we made this. This is a skull that I owned, because you know I'm me. And uh, we, my art director, Darcy, uh, put it on a um, production letter, put it on an old lampstand. And so now I have this bizarre skull lampstand that I'll probably turn into a lamp at some point. Anyway, hi, Kermit. Hi. Hi. Where is he? There he is. He's right there. We see him. I got his friend right here. I saw that. I'm very honored. I think I, think I found the Curious Creations of Christine McDonald like about six months ago. Oh, really? Netflix just, you know, rambling around. And I didn't know you were attached to it. I didn't know anything about it. I just pressed play and then, you know, really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was great. Christine's amazing. And uh, I created the show kind of with her and for her and uh, directed all of them. And and, um, I was the showrunner. It was a great job. And because she's an amazing person and was fun to work with. And we did it in an incredibly short amount of time. And now she's got her own Patreon, which I'm jealous. She just kind of does whatever she wants and makes money and doesn't have to deal with networks or notes or development execs or any of that. She's literally her husband shoots it. She creates the stuff on, on camera and they edit it and he does the husband does the music and it's a two, two person show and she owns her own name and label. It's great. I'm going to do something like that, except it won't be a how to show. It'll be a crazy kid style show. I think in fact, what the hat and the Hawaiian shirts are all about. We can get into that. <laughs> yeah, you've been, you've been branding yourself like that for a while. And by the way, it's a great look for you. <laughs> well, when your name's Kirk, Captain kind of followed. I'm lazy and I like the beard because I don't have to shave every day. So <laughs> just sort of fell into it. <laughs> well, you could be still running around uh, dressed as the punk from Star Trek Four. So You know what, for my 60th birthday, which is a few years away, I was thinking of Doing the mohawk, dying at orange, doing it again, just for what What the hell, why not? Uh, hopefully in a couple of years, we'll be back in the, the live convention business. Uh, and if you do that, you come to our shows and we'll do that as a photo op. Right, Mike? Exactly. Yes, absolutely. I'll, uh, I, have to, I think I have to get my, my punk jacket taken out a bit. <laughs> I think I weigh almost 90 pounds. Well, I, not almost 90 pounds more than I did then, but you know. It's experience. It adds gravitas and us. 
And indeed, for our audience that may not be aware, Kirk has been uh, an associate producer. He was associate producer on Star Trek Four. That's correct. That was the official title. Yeah. Uh, did a lot of stuff. He was the voice of the computer screen that Spock goes through, uh, wound at what, one and a half times speed? Yeah, I wrote the questions and then recorded them because Leonard wanted something to do, to play to, because, you know, he wasn't just going to play to, and he didn't want the script supervisor. He wanted a little more method, like what is going to be. So I recorded them and we were going to just use it as a scratch track. And then in post-production, they said, well, what do you want? Who do you want to do the voice? He goes, I'll just use that. So yeah, I suddenly had three parts in the movie. They didn't give me credit for it because my name would have been the credits four times, but uh, yeah. And, and uh, you say you snuck a, uh, you recently revealed this on your Facebook. This was an Easter egg. Nobody knew of you snuck a star Wars reference into that. Yeah. T Plana Hoth. Matron, matron of Vulcan philosophy is planet Hoth with a T just put in front of plan. And nobody caught, although I put it, I, I revealed that on May the 4th this year. And, uh, a number of people on Twitter were like, oh, I knew that. <laughs> it made me laugh. <laughs> oh, I, I knew that long. I totally knew that. And then other people said, that's not how they spell it in the Star Trek encyclopedia. They say it's Plana or whatever. How do they spell it? And I'm like, well, I wrote it, so I think I know. Yeah, then I think I think the encyclopedia needs to be addended. <laughs> anyway. But, oh, like, there I am. So that's uh, you as a very young man. 23 or 24, I guess. So so you you came to Star Trek after having worked for um, for Lucasfilm. Yeah, I worked at ILM on Jedi and a little bit on Poltergeist and E.T. and on Star Treks 2 and 3, actually. I did the creature, the molding and casting. I didn't sculpt or design anything on 2 or 3, but I did help build the SETI eels, and I helped cast... And then performed actually the Klingon dog, the dog lizard. I forgot what he's called. The, the targ, a targ. Yeah. So I puppet. I was under Chris Lloyd's seat. My right arm stuck through a hole in it on the side, with my arm wedged into this rubber fake dog body. So I did that, and then I puppeteered. There's actually a picture of me in Cinefix when uh, Krug has the. Is it Krug? That was his character. Yes. Right? Yeah. He's got this like worm thing that came from Spock's coffin that because yes. of this effect. So I'm I'm there puppeteering it and I'm like a Tyvek suit on because there was methicel, which is like slime, was all over it and it's just dripping on us. So there's a picture of me with short hair in, in Cinefix. One of the few pictures of me doing anything on any of those jobs. Well, uh, I do I do have another picture of you from your your days as a I guess you were a bounty hunter. <laughs> you you, yeah. you hunted apparently you were hunting uh Mon Calamari. Yeah, I was. I got a lot of money for those heads. Collecting heads. <laughs> yeah, that was me on Jedi. I painted all of those. I set up the paint shop at uh, in Marin at the Creature Shop because there was one in London and one in Marin. And London mainly did Jabba, obviously, and it was a huge job. And the Ewoks and Bib Fortuna, and we pretty much did everything else. So, yeah, I, I painted a lot of the creatures and most, most of them, actually. If it was more than a one-off, I, I usually did all the multiples. Wow. So how did you start working with Nimoy? Well, I uh, so I went. I was at ILM for about two and a half years and worked on Gremlins, about two years, and then Gremlins for about a year. And started doing uh, rock videos with David Fincher up in San Francisco. He and I and my girlfriend at the time formed a company. And then I moved to L.A., and started back at UCLA. So I'd gone for UCLA for one semester, trimester in 1980. 
and then started on Jedi in early 81. And then went back to UCLA to study computer graphics because I said, well, this is going to take over seeing what they had done on uh, Young Sherlock and Star Trek uh, Three. Mm-hmm. I said, this is going to re- be very important in filmmaking and particularly in effects. So I was taking classes there. And one day, and again, this was about January, February. And I guess it was 84. It was either 84 or 85. I guess it was 85. That sounds right. I don't know. I was 23. <laughs> it was a while ago. And so uh, someone came to the animation workshop and said that uh, Paramount is looking for an assistant for Leonard Nimoy for Star Trek four. He had directed Star Trek three and he was doing four and he wanted someone <laughs> who knew special effects and filmmaking. And so, I mean, I'd literally just been at ILM for two years and done gremlins and done a bunch of rock videos as a production designer with Dave Fincher. So I, you know, they came to me though. TA said, you sound like you'd be, you know, at least the right kind of guy. So I met with Leonard and we hit it off and uh, I literally was tailor made for the job he wanted. He wants someone on his team that knew effects and knew the ins and outs of production. And that was exactly what I'd been doing. So he hired me. I started as his assistant and about halfway through, he said uh, they wanted to give me a promotion because I was being more than as an assistant. He wanted to call me associate director or assistant director, but that's a specific title with the DGA. So he ended up calling me uh, saying, we're going to make you an associate producer. And I said, I dude, I don't care. I love this. I'll, call me chief cook and bottle washer but so that's how i got that and then all the other little bits i got just from being around leonard and helping him (laughs) so yeah so that's how i met leonard i interviewed with him Uh, they were looking i remember he told me they met someone who graduated from harvard someone who'd gone to usc film school and myself three or four different candidates and he said like i kind of knew i just was almost genetically engineered to, to do the job he wanted so it was great. Well, and well, good friends. And, and again, considering how well that film came out. And then, of course, which is so odd, uh, this has kind of become your, uh, I guess, your signature uh, sort of thing that you're known for. And yeah. then, but, but but weirdly enough, but then when people start going into your history, like, oh, my God, this guy's had his finger on everything. Yeah, I just say I have ADHD and I can't stick with one job for very long. <laughs> that 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 mohawk has been haunting you your entire life. Uh, it was a comfortable haircut. I, what's funny was I'd had a short version of one a few years earlier, but not the you know not that that tall. I just had kind of <clears throat> shaved sides with like an inch and a half, two inch buzz cut, and uh, and it had been dyed orange, but not that bright. It hadn't been bleached. It was just sort of orange over my natural color so that was we went 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 for it as they say for for that and and that was you singing in your band right yeah that was my song and i wrote it and sang it and then the band was just the sound effects guys uh mark mangini who won an oscar finally been nominated a number of times won an oscar for uh fury road mad max movie and then uh two of the other sound engineers at his company and we just recorded in the hallway to sound like a crappy what real punk was like back then, you know, like the Canada yeah. comedies and Truth on TSOL and uh, the Dickies, a lot of the stuff, the West Coast bands that I grew up listening to and, and liking sort of the anarchy and the snarkiness. They were there was always tongue in cheek, uh, particularly Dickies and Dead Kennedys yeah. um, had a, a sense of kind of sarcastic mm-hmm. irony. And that's what I tried to put in the song. No, it, no, it, it sounds it. That's what 
I knew more than a couple of punk kids at the time who were like on the hunt trying to figure out what it was because it was it sounded it sounded authentic hundred percent. Yeah, I uh, I still have people trying to find. Finally, they released it on an album, a, a comprehensive CD of all the music from Star Trek Four, Leonard Leonard Rosamond's score, and the Yellow Jackets, and the uh, and uh, the I Hate You tune. So, uh, and uh, there's a great punk band uh, called Boldly Go that covers it and they very kindly asked for my permission and I said sure guys so I might I'm actually thinking of writing like four other Star Trek punks you know maybe Star Wars related punk songs and doing a little mini album just you know uh, to sell for like eight ten bucks on the download yeah I'm sure once two people download it I'll be free and everyone will just steal it so it's not not really a big money maker but uh, it'll be fun well Patty Patty will, Patty will give you uh 20 bucks Yes. All right, Patty. I'll sign your. I'll sign it then. I'll sign your. I'll sign your download files. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, you could be. You could be a star on uh, on Doctor Demento. That's true. I love Doctor. I grew up in Doctor Demento. I got to meet Weird Alf a couple years ago. What a great guy! You know, somebody I. Not that much older than I am, but uh, man, he looks good. (laughs) He looks like. Well, between the yoga and the veganism, I, yeah. I, yeah, it's true. Those vegans don't age. Adjusting <laughs> all that dead cow just really takes it out of you, I guess. <laughs> well, we got to die something. So after after all that, you kind of end up in Muppet Land. Yeah, well, uh, an effects producer at an effects company in L.A., her husband, they divorced at this point, was Jim Frawley, the guy who directed the first Muppet movie. And she and I had become friends. And I showed her, actually, this is one of the creatures. I showed her this show I was pitching. And I designed a bunch of creatures for it. And it was a going to be like a live action. It's a space show with mainly creatures and just a couple humans in it. And she said, you know who'd love that is Jim Henson. And she would you like to meet him? I said, yeah. She goes, well, I know him because my husband directed the first Muppet movie. So <laughs> long story short, I met Jim from her introduction. And we hit it off. And I started working with him freelancing like, so this was, I think it was summer of 86. There you go. That's me with my pretty hair. Look, look at uh, that head of hair. Oh, there. So see in the background, you can see the guy I just held up right above me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other, the other two are right there. Uh, the, the like lizard looking one and the chameleon. That is a handsome head of hair, sir. Isn't that? Yeah. Women used to stop me. I would go into like Macy's or Bloomies at in New York. And and these women, the very New York would be, oh my God, what do you do? Your hair is gorgeous. I wish I had your hair. I'm so <laughs> jealous. Like be part Italian and part Scottish. I don't know. I know. I look uh I look cute there. I'd I'd date me. <laughs> yeah, so that was me working at Henson. I went to New York and worked well, I freelanced for that first year, and then eighty-eight I moved to New York and stayed there for about a year and two months, working on the Jim Henson hour, and then moved back to LA because Jim this was how generous and kind Jim was. He wanted to just keep me on. I said, well, you don't have any gigs. He's like, yeah, but I like having you around as an idea guy and all that. So here's Waldo. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the things I designed that Jim, Jim loved technology. Obviously he was always pushing it much like Lucas was in the digital realm. Jim was always yeah. pushing puppetry. And this was the first that I know of digitally controlled puppet. So it's a ge- computer generated puppet controlled with a Waldo system which became the Jim Henson uh, HDPS system or Henson digital performance system. And uh, yeah, Waldo was our first foray into that for the Jim Henson hour. Guy, you did your research. And so move back uh, to LA. 
You got to say, Mike, Mike, Mike is a, a Muppets aficionado. So, ah, okay. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll out him on that right now. <laughs> Listen, Patty, we know how much of a nerd you are. Yes. Uh, let's, you're both nerdy, okay? You're both pretty and you're both nerdy. Let's we, we all three of us listen to Dr. Demento right. in our bedrooms. That's what know? I love about cons. People are like, oh, why do you go to conventions? I said, because it's like high school reunion with people you didn't go to high school with, but you have more in common with mo than most of the people you went to high school with. Because we all have really similar interests and, and somewhat backgrounds. Although, you know, you do meet people who are from completely different cultures, but there's still that passion for... And, and what's weird is you don't feel unusual there. But then when you go to a party with, you know, your lawyer friends or something, you're the odd man out. You're like, oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> that's what, I forgot. I'm unusual. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, always, it's always, Patty, what's the name of that uh, character, the hero in that movie, uh, the guy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's your stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, Patty, that's my job. As Patty will tell you, you know, yes, I am. I am a bit of a, you know. And uh, look, between Muppets, Star Trek, and Star Wars, if you had done anything on Planet of the Apes with those other three, I think my wife would be concerned. <laughs> yeah, that was a little before my time. And then the last one where they did it uh, with Rick Baker's uh, didn't. Yeah, I'd gotten out of creatures at that point. But yeah, those are those were big movies, too. And, and big influences uh, growing up that Johnny Chambers makeup on the first. Oh, couple. God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, you go to L.A. Oh, so I went to L.A. and then worked on RoboCop 2 with Phil Tippett for about six months. Then got a job at Disney Imagineering right about the time the Henson Company. So I still in touch with Henson's and everything, but I just didn't want to take Jim's money just to be hang around. Also, New York was expensive. So I went up to worked on RoboCop 2, came back to L.A. and started working at Disney Imagineering, designing a futuristic version of Tomorrowland. Carousel Progress was going to be turned into a space carnival, like a crashed spaceship that had a was like a traveling ufo space carnival huh. uh, very much like what america sings was but with aliens and all that so i grabbed tony mcveigh or, or recommended him who was one of the main sculptors designers on jedi yeah and he he sculpted the gremlin for gremlins one and, and recently he's been working on mandalorian and the last few star wars movies up at ilm so he and i designed creatures for that and then it never happened but while that was while we were working on that, Henson was making a deal with Disney to be sold, to have the Muppet franchise or the whole Henson organization sold. So I was also consulting on a couple Muppet rides that they were going to do. They were going to have a Muppet movie ride. And that was the main one I did consulting on. So I was in Imagineering, staying in touch with Henson's and designing and brainstorming dinosaurs with Jim. So that was the last thing we worked on. We had done two rounds of... I just had my second meeting with him on the character designs when he passed away about four days later, which was obviously shocking for anyone who knew him, but particularly I'd just seen him on a Friday and I think he passed away on a Tuesday. And the character designs like, for uh, dinosaurs. Yeah. Those are the character designs for dinosaurs. And I did those and then he passed away and then Disney was still interested in doing the show. There he is. Uh, the dinosaurs on the, on the right. I'm the uh, well, I'm before the you before you leave the dinosaurs thing, no. So you you worked on dinosaurs for a while. Yeah, for about three years, I designed the characters, most of the characters, the whole family, and then Pete Brook designed Earl. I'm sorry, Roy, the T Rex, and uh, Kevin Bo Boyle designed the other three kind of sidekick work buddies because I was busy enough with the uh, 
share the love a little bit. And they were great designers, still are great designers. Pete Brook runs the creature shop now. So um, dinosaurs, that that finale <laughs> is one of the most <laughs> amazing things I think I ever saw on TV. Well, it's interesting. So I had written this script about the bunch beetles. You can see one down. In fact, <laughs> if you notice a similarity, I have a certain design aesthetic. <laughs> uh, so these beetles, the idea was it was about trying to solve environmental disasters with bad thinking. And originally, the original story was these beetles would come every year and breed in this breeding ground and then eat this plant, this like kudzu-like plant. And then the next generation would keep the plant down. Well, a plastic fruit company had paved over their breeding ground. So these two beetles come back like Shriners ready to party or go, you know, two guys going to Comic-Con and nobody's there. And so they can't breed. So they're depressed. So that's kind of how it starts. And then they realize, oh, this plant is now taking over like a kudzu. And so it came down to Earl to, you know, figure out how the problem was going to be solved. Well, right about that time I pitched that story and we were working on it. We got the note that we've been canceled. So my story turned into the story where they keep solving the problem and making things worse, ultimately uh, creating a nuclear winter by blocking up the volcanoes or exploding things in the volcanoes that send cloud cover everywhere, puts the world in nuclear winter, and you end up here. But it was very in keeping with Jim's original idea was let's do a show about dinosaur thinking that, you know, we're the biggest apex predator. We can do whatever we want. The planet's ours. And it's funny, people have been responding recently. It's going to come back out again on uh, Disney Plus, I think. In the really next... soon, yeah. Yeah, in fact, they re... Funko just released. I think I have one here. Funko released little figures. Ah, sorry, Kermit. <laughs> this is one of them. This is Charlene. Oops. Uh, I'm not used to the flip. There we go. There you go. Hey. So they did the whole. They did the whole family. So I'm selling autographed ones on my website. Which is KirkThatcher.com. Yes, exactly. If you go there, I haven't put them up yet, but probably this weekend, because I'm not going to buy, you know, a hundred of them and then sell them off. I'm going to buy them because they're, you know, not the cheapest thing to ship like a photograph, but it'll probably be like 80 bucks without 75, $80 without shipping. Sure. And I'll sign it and put whatever you want. I can sign the box or sign the, the Funko Pop. So I'll, I will start putting those up and I also have some Greta Gremlins because I did her voice. Uh, I did a bunch of voices in Gremlins too, but Greta was the uh, one that's the most memorable. So I'm doing some Funko Pop signings. But yeah, so it was back to the idea. It was about dinosaur thinking and how, there you go. Yeah. So I will be, uh, God, you're fast. I will be uh, <laughs> signing those and selling them on my website. And it's cheaper for me to buy it and ship it to you than for you to buy it, ship it and get it shipped back. So yeah, yeah. I'll probably do is take orders for like a month and then, Stop. Do a mass, yeah. mass exit, yeah. Just, yeah, buy a bunch of them, ship them all out. So, yeah. So, uh, people have been coming up to me recently and saying, oh, my gosh, it's so it still holds the, – the social issues are still important today, which is sad, I guess. The environment and, uh, you know, rights for people who are uh, differing sexual preferences. Um, all that stuff was baked in there. War, why we go to war. Yeah. You know, women in the workplace, sexual harassment. All that I mean, dinosaurs did was was known for that. Working on talking about social issues, taboo issues, things yeah. that just weren't discussed in the context of this 
you know, puppet show. That's, that's that was the great thing about puppets that Jim used to talk about is that you could do it with people, do it with people, but you, what you can do with puppets is things that won't offend anybody, but will bring up it's you know like Aesop's fables or something, you know, like oh it's a fox and a bird. So you're not saying that Italians are particularly, you know, good with money or whatever your your thing is. You can do it with uh, these not prototypes, but sort of uh, placeholders for human foibles. Well, and, uh, it, was it was the same. It was the same secret of Star Trek's original success. Yes, it was exactly. Just that going going to an alien world where there was a situation which was a thi- was a thinly veiled allegory or metaphor for a similar situation that we had on Earth. And yeah, the, the, fight- the, the, the yeah yeah the trick was was that you can't make it so dumb that the dumbest person gets it right away. To me, that's always the best. If you if you get if people get if people halfway through, oh my god, it's about us. Oh. Right. <laughs> You did that like Shatner. It's about us. Yeah. These beings are black on white side, white on the other, and they're white on one side and black on the other. It's ridiculous. Riddle me me this, Batman. I am white (laughs) on one side and black on the other. (laughs) Whoops, sorry. Sorry, Frank. Anyway, so but yeah, so that and 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 it was weird too because when Nicers first came out, so you're like, okay, it's it's this will be cutesy. It'll be one kind of one step up from Fraggles and one step below the Simpsons. That's what I, when I first yeah. saw it, I visioned as. Then when I started the catching critics. the episodes, I was like, wait a minute. That's what being- the critics. The first, the first critical review after like two episodes at air was, I think it was, I saved it. <laughs> the quote was, yabba dabba duh. It was just like, it was trying to be the Simpsons, but with dinosaurs, which we were not. I mean, I think we got on the air because of the Simpsons' success, but we yeah. were. And but the Simpsons ta- tackles obviously social issues too. They just have a bigger world because it's drawn as opposed to we physically built it. And uh, and but- there's still humor. I you you guys were really 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 being being surreptitious and almost mischievous. I think in, in yeah, getting these elements in the show. Definitely uh, an archness to it. I, I like the episodes I wrote. Usually were more just silly. I wasn't really a much of a social justice warrior at the time. I did things like when the food goes bad, potty training the baby, the invention of Halloween, stuff like that that was silly and just fun. I mean, I, you know, I kept saying, we're not really having fun with the fact that they're dinosaurs and they eat things in the fridge. You know, yeah. we can play off the, the absurd practicalities of their life. And uh, so it was a good mix. I think kids loved it for that kind of stuff. And uh, savvy adults were getting what we were saying. <clears throat> So uh, we have some people that have some comments. Oh, okay. Uh, Bob uh, wants to send appreciation for you. Oh. Bob West. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Oh, I just see these now. He uh, wants to tell you that we got to love the baby. Oh, thanks for and, thanks, thanks from Hawaii. I love Hawaii, I, as you can tell. And Matthew right. Woods wants to know, who who's your favorite Muppet? Everyone asks me that. I... Out of the old Muppets, it would be Gonzo. And then out of kind of the new breed, I love Pepe and Bobo. Both done by Bill Beretta, who's a friend. But even if I never met the guy, I would love those characters. Because they're just uniquely their own thing, you know, as as were the original Muppets. But uh, I think those are my favorites. To write for and direct, too. Because when Bill is in those characters, he just vamps. And it's hilarious. He just, you know, he lives those characters. They're not, he's not doing like you know, an impression of Kermit or something he's doing, he created them. So I think that's probably a big part of it. And same with Dave Goals. He created Gonzo. So 
There's he's not concerned about, oh, is my impression right? And the guys who are doing, you know, the characters that Jim and, and Frank and and Richard Hunt and Jerry now have done uh, are doing a great job, you know, and, and they're getting really good at being thinking in that those characters. Did, but, did you see the uh, the Happy Land murders? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. a. <laughs> I was involved in the first punch up draft on that. In okay. fact, oh. you can blame me for the silly string joke. <laughs> oh, that was that was my one of my, one of the things I know I I submitted that the movie changed a lot, but that one was because I think in terms of practical things and puppets, I said it's got to be silly string because that's hilarious. And can you be offended if it's silly string? It just kind of made sense. So well, Bill Bill did a gr- Bill did a great job on that. Bill yeah. Did. Oh no, he's amazing. Well, it was funny because it was he was playing it straight. You know, he was playing it like you know, an Al Pacino character, not like a, a nutty puppet. And yeah. uh, that's harder to do. Yeah. I think people, I, I mean, it did not get well received, but I think a lot of it was the ad campaign really doubled down on it's adult. And I think, yeah. you know, they really pushed that hard and it was, but that wasn't all it was about, but it, it also had a little bit of too many crooks. It had been tried to be made for 15 years and different actors have been attached and different, you know, uh, Brian was always going to direct it, but, uh, I think even in the end, he felt like he'd been uh, kind of railroaded by producers and stuff where, you know, to get it made, you kind of sell off uh, creative rights. So, right. Yeah. uh, It was a fun script. Going backwards in time, back to 87. (laughs) I was, uh, we're going to go, we're going to, we're going to slingshot around the sun and go back to 1987. I was reading about something called Muppet Voyager that you worked on. And it was a, uh, in a 1988 article in Channels, a magazine for television industry, mentioned an international Muppet project. There are children in the world who never heard of the Muppets in China. Yeah. And Um, then you worked on it. You did all the work, but apparently it never came out. That was the first thing I did with Jim. It was about 80, yeah, 87. We were working on it. That was the first job, designing and helping brainstorm that show. I'd forgotten it was called Mm -hmm. Muppet Voyager. Yeah, it was about... (laughs) Four or five aliens in a in a spaceship that was like a dirigible meets a spaceship, and it was teaching kids about different cultures, just okay. how like you know it's not Western culture that rules the world; it's just what they're used to. So it was really for Western kids to learn about what it's like to live in Africa and what they eat and what they do in Japan. And, oh yeah, there it is. That was um, I forgot the I have that book somewhere. Yeah, that was one of the first designs I did for uh, the Muppets. Commander Horse Flash. Horse Flash, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a deep, that is a deep cut. Yeah, so that's what got me the job designing characters for Muppets tonight. I think the only one that lasted was, yeah, there he is, it was Clifford. Yeah, so his hair was supposed to be uh, fishing lures, worm, like purple fishing lure worms. <laughs> oh, wow. I thought it was just because they were only bouncing. Yeah, they all, but yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I dig it. I dig it. And uh, kind of look. I still always wanted to do that with a puppet. It's never happened, but uh, someday, 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 someday. Yep, that was the computer. The idea was that the ship's computer had a personality and arm, so she could actually type her own questions in, which I thought was funny. Well, kind yeah. of you bring up every awkward, you know, thing you've worked on in your entire life. <laughs> I've got photos that you thought were long erased from history. <laughs> as long as they're the tasteful news. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, Nimoy, Nimoy had some uh, uh, had a had a strange fetish. I mean, you know, 
Do you know about Nimoy's uh, artistic uh, nudes? Oh, yeah. I, t I teased him about it. We stayed friends until he passed away, in fact. So I'd go. I had lunch with him once a year, usually, just, you know, keeping in touch. And he invited me over to the house. He was just showing me his new place because he moved into uh, a place right next to the Bel Air Hotel. And he showed me his photo studio, and there's all these pictures of curvy, naked women. And, you know, I don't know if Zoftig's the right word. They weren't fat, but they were at least not in my Probably by Cosmos standards. They were uh, Roger Crumb type. Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They uh, are thick. Voluptuous and thick, yeah, it, like, exactly. And so I'm like, so I started laughing. I said, well, you've got the perfect retirement. You basically have women come to your house, take off their clothes, you get to take pictures of them. You laugh. I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah. I enjoy the way the light works around the forms. I'm like, sure you do. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but i was like dude you you know you you figured it out you're uh spending your last 20 years just you know naked women showing up at your house you don't have to go anywhere but uh he was great he was an amazing person I mean, i've been very fortunate jim and henson and leonard and uh yeah great 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 people they, they felt like uncles you know like favorite uncles that would uh i mean there are worse people to have as uh, as mentors yeah exactly let's um, uh Talk about mentoring and stuff. Why don't you tell our audience the story of uh, the first time you met Kevin Feige? You know, he kind of confessed that you were actually one of his, uh, you were one of his inspirations. Yeah, that's a crazy story. So I go to Comic Con like I used to do, like we all used to do, but every year, probably for 35 years. And my buddy, uh, a friend of mine, is Michael Giacchino, the composer, and he'd done a few star uh, Marvel movies at this point. And so we he we were hanging out at comic-con he said hey marvel's having a little party do you want to go i said yeah i'd love to i you know, love marvel movies i love what they're doing um so i went in there and there's probably 20 30 people and it was more like an executive dinner it wasn't i thought it was like a big comic-con party it yeah. was like a private dinner for i guess all the producers and stuff the execs at marvel uh-huh yes uh-huh uh-huh yes yes yeah so far so went in there and I walked in with Michael and uh, our mutual friend, David Silverman, who's helped create the Simpsons and all that. So we walk in and Michael goes, Hey everybody. And I like, Hey Michael, you know, it was like Norm at cheers. Hey, cause they all knew him. And he said, I just want, I brought my friends along. This is David Silverman who works on the Simpsons and David waves. And they'll go, Hey, I think he knew a couple of them. And then he goes, and this is Kirk Thatcher works on the Muppets. And they're like, hey, Kirk. It was funny. And then Kevin Feige walks up to me. He goes, wait, you're the Kirk Thatcher? And I thought he was joking. So I said, what? And I look at Michael. Is Michael just smiling? I'm like, are you punk? You know, like punking me? He goes, wait, the one from Star Trek Four who did the song? And I'm like, yeah. He said, he shook my hand. He goes, you're the reason I got into the film business. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, you're the reason I got it. Because I saw Star Trek Four. I was like 15. And I saw it, and your name was in the credits as the song and the producer and associate producer. And he said, "I want to do that. I want to be so. I want to be a producer if that's what you get to do." So I'd had a couple of drinks at this point, and I said, "Well, then why aren't you hiring me to work on one of your movies?" <laughs> and there, and there we go. And that turned into that cameo. I didn't get hired to. Well, I did get hired to be a cameo. Um, he loved the punk thing so much, so that was his homage. Is he put me in, in Spider Man uh, Homecoming? And my credit is punk on street. And I have one line of dialogue and it's not even when I'm in shot. It's when uh, this guy here, the other fellow is watching Spider-Man on the roof and he goes, Hey, Spider-Man, do a flip. And he does a flip. 
and I'm just watching with the boombox. And originally they were going to play I Hate You on it. And then Disney didn't want to pay for the rights. Um, so there's not, I'm holding a boombox with no music coming out of it, which I thought was weird. And then uh, my line is eh, on Spider Man, you just hear, eh, not bad. And that was it. That was my little cameo. So I, uh, I let my hair grow and kept my beard long for that. But it came about because I was having a meeting at Marvel and Kevin was supposed to be there. Came in a little late because he had car trouble and said, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry I'm late. We talked for like five minutes. He said, I got, I'm going to New York tonight. I said, oh, I'm going to New York on Friday. What are you going for? He goes, oh, we're finishing up Spider-Man. I said, oh, or, you know, where are you shooting? He goes, oh, we're shooting on location in the city. I said, awesome. He goes, you should, you should, oh my God, we should put you in the movie. I'm like, wait, seriously? He goes, yeah, yeah. You could just see his wheels turn. He's like, you could be the punk on the punk on the street, or you could be the punk and, and you'll have the boombox and we'll, we'll play the song. And, 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 and cause we're shooting a scene in Queens. I'm like, okay. He goes, will you do it? I said, sure. I can just change my flight to a red eye on Thursday night. So the next day, the producer calls me and said, well, you got to be there at four in the morning for hair and makeup because we're shooting. And I'm like, okay. So I took the red eye. Well, <laughs> I literally took the red eye, went to the hotel, threw my suitcase down, lay down for an hour, and then just showered and went to set. I didn't really have to do much because I'd let my hair and beard get super funky. And yeah, that was how that's how that happened. So I'm still talking with Marvel. It's a very slow process. <laughs> They have a lot of other people that are very famous. I, I wish, uh, I just want to shadow Taika Watiti for a whole film. That would be awesome. Because I've met him a couple times. He's incredibly charming, lovely guy, but I just love his sensibilities uh, for all, his Marvel movies, but also his other stuff like Hunt for the Wilder People and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jojo Rabbit. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> He's well, awesome. the nice thing is, is the Marvel is one of those things that uh, I'm willing to bet the farm and grandma's farm is not going away anytime soon. Well, yeah. So my new concept <laughs> is to do something with them and the Muppets. So I have an idea that uh, I've thrown around a couple friends and they think it's good. So I'm not going to say anymore, but I think it could be, it would be good for the Muppets, whether it's good for Marvel or not. I mean, it kind of expands their universe without hurting it, if you know what I mean. Sure, sure. Because they have Howard the Duck, which to me is a Muppet movie. <laughs> if they did it, right? Yeah, and that's and they, they joked around it with the cameos and Guardians and stuff. But I was just like, no, no, they could do, they could really do Howard the Duck correct. Yeah, they, they yeah. really could. And honestly, I, I it would it'd well, work much better as a streaming series than Kevin, anything else. Yeah, Kevin Smith was going to do it as a streaming animated series. Yeah, and then the yeah. whole Marvel thing restructured, and I guess it got killed. So I don't know yeah. if anything's happening with it or not. I, I now that things have rearranged, I should probably talk to them. But I, I think, you know, they have bigger directors. They have big fancy names. Well, you're a big fancy director. You just directed some uh, Muppets Now stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those were done really fast. I did about half of them actually. All the Pepe the game show ones, all the Piggy lifestyle, and all the Bunsen and Beaker science episodes so i think yeah all of those at least one episode so and, you, and, and you know bunsen's very so you did all the bunsen and beaker yeah all the miss piggy and all the peppy game show ones so it was a different format when we shot it i mean the contents those episodes are all the same the wraparound is what they really played with so i haven't actually seen it yet because um, well, i was i watched the first episode yeah and i haven't seen the second one yet and i didn't see your name yeah, well, that's because that's because uh, it was a non-union gig, so I had to do it under my. I have two pseudonyms. Oh, Rufus Scott Church, because what would a Kirk Thatcher do? Wait <laughs> for it. 
Ewood Rufus Scott Church. Sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, the other one is Crash Davenport. I've, I think I've revealed too much. Uh, <laughs> so it's Crash with a K usually, sometimes spelled with C. So, yeah, uh, I don't know how Disney could get away with shooting non-union stuff. In yeah, with the Muppets. I know. Yeah. How is that possible? It uh, keeps the budget yeah. down, I guess. Yeah, I guess. It's um, not like streaming. Well, there's no residuals anyway at streaming, so I don't understand, and I just kind of... Right. Do it, so, yeah. it just is what it is. So you, so speaking of Muppets, you co-wrote Treasure Island. Uh-huh. That was my... So Christmas Carol had come out while I was doing Dinosaurs, and I thought it was cute and fun and sweet, but it was so charming and, like, cute, like a little cutesy for me. So I said, let's do a big, you know, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. I said, but let's do a big rollicking adventure, like a Western or a pirate movie. And I really thought, I loved Pirates of the Caribbean growing up. And I thought, not the movies, obviously, the the, the ride. And I thought, you know, pirates are just fun. You, like, they, you can have these crazy characters and you're out in the sea. And so we said, well, you know, what's a classic pirate story? Well, Treasure Island. So Jerry and I, we, we sold them on that idea that I was really pushing for. Jerry was on board with whatever because he was going to write it with me. And then we went off and wrote it. I uh, went to Jerry's place in Mendocino. We spent about three months writing it, handed it in, and then did rewrites. And then uh, Jim, James V. Hart came in. And, and the, our original version started like Treasure Island, very much like the movie is now, except the main difference was there was no Jim Hawkins. Gonzo and Rizzo were Jim and Hawkins. They were, they were basically. Oh. And there was no human kid. But Disney was like, no, we need to have a real kid because it's kid movie. <laughs> Kids don't like movies without kids in it, which I never understand. I think it's not true. I I um, totally, yeah, don't think if that. If that were true, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians would be a giant hit. <laughs> um, Good point. And Bugsy yeah, there were lots of kids on the original Muppet show. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that we lost that battle, but it worked out fine because Gonzo and Rizzo were sidekicks, and they got all the comedy, and, and Kevin Bishop, who played Jim Hawkins, was lovely, a great actor, and still is. We're still friends. Uh, he's a big comedic actor now in England. And then, uh, so it pretty much stayed that up to like Cabin Fever, which was my pitch for, because I said, when I was a kid and it was the middle of the movie and it's the romance or they're talking about, do I have any Tim Curry stories? Somebody just popped. I do, nothing untoward, just that he was a lovely guy. So after Cabin Fever, when they got to the island, it, it became like a Hope and Crosby road picture, which was my pitch. It's like, there was giant tiki statues that came alive. There was a volcano. Piggy was worshipped by the native pigs. But again, there was this tiki god that came alive and chased him down to the water. And so Jim, Jim, Jim Hart came in and basically kind of corralled it back to the original story. And my point was, and I still stand by it, I think at the time we made it, there had been 13 versions of Treasure Island made. And after the Charlton Heston one, where his son, Fraser Heston, did it, which is exactly the book. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It is it's it, it is a good version. A great version of that movie. It's not cutied up or or dumbed down. Um, I said, why are we doing? You know, why are we hewing so closely to the book? I mean, we shouldn't. And so, but James brought it back, particularly with the the Long John Jim relationship, which is what the movie's about. And he's really good at that's what he does. He did Dracula for Coppola. He did uh, Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. He takes classic books and and he's done a bunch of other things. But so he did a third draft and then jerry and i came in and polished it for production once it was greenlit we were there rewriting for whatever production needs were and adding and tweaking jokes so somebody let me just go uh, some of the notes here oh creature shop challenge you're welcome austin i love that show i wish i wish that never went away 
a kidless Muppet movie. Yes, Austin, me too. Uh, did, someone asked, do I have any Tim Curry stories? No, I mean, we stayed friends afterwards. Nothing outrageous. He was just great. He and Billy Connolly were two, like, dream come trues. And ter- so when you're writing the thing, you're, you you have ideas for who would be great. And and both Tim as, as Long John and Billy as Billy Bones. In fact, we wrote Billy Bones because I was a big fan of uh, Billy Connolly's stand-up. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't done a lot of movies at that point. And I just thought when we wrote that dialogue, I heard his voice in my head. In fact, at the early read-throughs where nobody was cast, I would read it as Billy. Like, hey, Jim. Oh, you know, Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. And I remember when even Brian's like, I don't get it. Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. Why is that funny? I said, it's funny if it's a Scottish accent. It's just funny. And also, if you know the Scots, they use Jimmy as like the way we do. Hey, pal, or hey, Mac. Hey, Jimmy, what's up? You know, it's like, what do you mean? Hey, buddy. So anyway, but yeah, I don't have any stories that are particularly, uh, there he is. Tim, Tim told me something afterwards. We were doing a, he was doing a voiceover for, what's funny is we had used Tim in dinosaurs as voices. He had done a voice of a, a mink stole for Charlene and, and, a, and a number of, he's an amazing voice talent. Mm-hmm. And so I'd used him. So I'd met him, but very, very casually because I really wasn't hanging around the recording sessions. So when we cast him for uh, Treasure Island, I said, you know, you, I worked on dinosaurs. And, and then he stays good. He's still friends with Brian Henson and stuff. So Brian have parties and I'd see Tim. Um, but yeah, I don't have any like Tim and I went out and got roaring drunk and, you know, and put painted a mustache on the, the Trafalgar Square statue. I don't know that Marsha would have liked that. Yeah, exactly. But uh, uh, He's great. Uh, Erica, uh, er- Erica, who asked that question, uh, we are hosting uh, a Tim Curry experience here at GalaxyCon on September 19th at uh, 2 p.m. So head over to GalaxyCon.com and get details on that. We are offering private one-on-one chats with uh, Mr. Curry. So you can talk to him and get a, get a, you talk to and yourself one-on-one. Him about Kirk and what he yeah, thinks Exactly. And get, get back to us on that. There's Billy. Oh, hey, we're still friends. We email each other now. He's he's back in Scotland. He was in New York. He's in L.A. I developed a TV series for him, and then he just decided he didn't want to do TV anymore because he liked movies a lot better. But, yeah, it, just both great. And British actors and comedians tend to have a more realistic view of their their, their – they're not star-driven like we are in, in the States. Even if they become a star, they're not – I don't think they believe the press, whereas a lot of times here – and, you know, look, there's stars here are lovely people too, but I've tended to work a lot with British actors. And I don't know if, I think partly it's because the Muppets were so huge in England, mm. much more beloved than they are here. There's fans here, but in England, it's kind of, they were generally loved. I would say the Muppets were loved in England the way Monty Python was loved here. You, um, you, you produce the, um, the show, right? The, um, the live. What show? Did you do a Muppet thing? In England, uh, oh yeah, the O2, the Hollywood. We yeah, took the Hollywood yeah. Bowl show and we rejiggered about thirty three percent of it to be specific for England, uh, particularly London. And we did, yeah. So we've done two live shows: a Hollywood Bowl show, which is three nights in London, three shows, uh, two nights in a matinee. And uh, people loved it. It was fun because it was really like the old Muppet Show. We had silly acts like a bunch of wigs singing hair, and uh, we had Bobby Moynihan, who I absolutely adore a lovely human being and he was a huge Muppet fan. And when he left SNL and we were doing this Hollywood bowl show, I said, let's, cause we were looking for the hosts. I said, Bobby Moynihan would be perfect. And he couldn't have been happier. I, you know, he, he was just, 
we were happy, ecstatic to have him and he was happy to be there. An amazing, amazing guy and just a sweetheart to work with. Hey, I know that guy. So that was me shooting. I think uh, that was in New York shooting something, a commercial for a Japanese television company, I think. <laughs> so what do the Muppets mean to you? Oh, gosh, it's so multi-layered because it's not just a TV show for me. It's a whole cult culture and a company. Um, you know, Jim Henson, obviously, and his family are, I always feel like they're family. Uh, like I said, Jim was like an uncle and Brian and Lisa and Cheryl and Heather and, and, and Johnny all feel like, you know, siblings or cousins. So in some ways, the Muppets and, and the Henson Company are inseparable for me. Now Disney owns the Muppets. So it's become more of a work thing. But back then it was like family. I mean, I worked with the company the longest I ever worked with anyone, just 10 years solid from, from dinosaurs all the way through uh, Muppets uh, from space. And then after that, I just became a freelancer and started directing the TV movies for them. I think what's interesting to me is, is how well received they are by people who have, uh, well, foreigners, people who don't speak English, who, who love the Muppets because they translate well. But also people with emotional or uh, developmental issues, they mm -hmm. just kind of they 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 communicate on a level that's below below. This below isn't the right word because it sounds pejorative. That is an emotional. It, there's an attachment to them that that I I see experientially through other people. Uh, to me, I just loved them because I thought they were funny. And then I met Jim and the corporate culture, and then it became like family. But before that, I just appreciated them as funny and creative and all that. And I think the one word, two words, creative, creativity and joy. I think Jim was such a huge, well, creative force, but also he knew how to work with creative people. And that's, that's the thing I find lacking the most in, in Hollywood. And it's sort of like saying, you know, how come all basketball players can't be, you know, Wilt Chamberlain or Shaq because they just don't have that. And, and, and Jim was incredibly blessed with not only, I mean, because there's other people who are really creative, but they don't work well with other people or it's kind of their way or the highway. And Jim had this ability to gather creative people. And then he really was Kermit. I mean, the Muppet show was in a large part or became a microcosm of the corporate culture at Henson, which was Jim surrounded by a bunch of creative people. Like we were talking about people go to cons, creative people who were not only fans of movies and props and, and puppets, but made them and brought all their delights to it and, and created this sort of world where you just got used to it. And then you go back out into the regular world of, of, of Hollywood where it's, you know, driven by marketing people and, and, and uh, bankers and it's all about finances and so much now marketing, you know, uh, yeah. it's the IP like, well, they'd rather take, you know, Yogi bear and make another, another version of it than develop something original. You know, if it isn't a book and it wasn't already a hit thing, an animated series or something, I mean, they did an emoji movie, <laughs> but, you know, as somebody who creates stuff and, and, and was spoiled by Jim, like, they, oh yeah, let's do this original idea. It's really hard to sell original ideas now. And, and another part of that is because the entertainment business is owned by five companies and they're very vertical. Like it's, you know, you, you if you don't play ball with them, you just, you know, you're on YouTube doing your own thing, which, but that's, that I think is what squeezed it and, and created YouTube is. There's people doing their own shows. I mean, they don't have the budgets, but it's like the Annoying Orange is a perfect example. This guy was just doing it on his, you know, computer at home and it got picked up by, I forgot which network. 
And then they kind of, you know, changed it and turned it into something else. And it lasted a season or two and then it died. And I don't know what he's doing now, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily, there's a bottom line there that isn't there for creative people just trying to make something cool. And Jim was that he, he set up a company to make something fun and cool to entertain. I think you, you kind of mentioned it earlier when we were talking about Christine McDonald. I mean, here's somebody who, you know, you guys did a show. It's, it's a great show. I think that it was not seen by as many people as it should have been seen by. I don't know. They, they, didn't, got, know how, you know, they didn't know how to promote it because it was half sitcom, half cooking show or, you know, making yeah. show, which is what we said. Yeah, it's this hybrid. I said it's Martha Stewart meets um, Morticia Adams. Right. And then I, I have no interest in the cooking part. I'm right. Just watching for the other stuff. And that was the idea we get the crossover. <laughs> people but, liked, you know, the the monsters and and the Adams family would like it as much as people who like Martha Stewart cooking. Right. So you have you have Netflix has its thing with somebody who has a fan base, doesn't know what to do with it, but now she's creating her own content. And I'm looking at her Patreon. She's got seven hundred seven thousand three hundred and fifty one patrons. Right. That are helping her make her stuff. So if all they just each one of them gave her twenty bucks, she'd be making what 15, 20 grand a month. Right. So I, I'm I'm, je- I'm jealous in some ways, and I'm also really inspired by that. I don't I don't make things every week like she does, but I I want to do like a nutty. I keep saying a kid show, but it's more. I said it's it's called Captain Randy Submarine. That's the th- I'm gonna probably do a Kickstarter. This is my so, little problem. But Kickstarter, Indiegogo, yeah, on, something like um, that. All but, that. Oh, go ahead. No, all that stuff, I think there's you, you are correct in that the studios only want to go with the safe stuff. Right. You know, they, they want to go for the IP, they want to do, you know, the things that you know they have. But there's so much there's so much stuff getting crowdfunded. Right. That is well, even, it, even it, with the Muppets, because you know, the Disney owns Star Wars and Marvel. So if they're gonna spend two hundred, three hundred, two hundred thousand, a hundred fifty thousand dollars a movie, they're pretty much guaranteed it's gonna make eight hundred million to a billion dollars. If you spend $80 million on a Muppet movie, they made 130. Now, I have personal issues with what the movies were. I didn't think, you know, they're not my cup of tea. I didn't write them and work on them. I'm talking about the last two, the Jason Siegel and the right. Muppets Most Wanted. I don't think they were bad movies, but I don't think they were. I, I don't see why people would, outside of Muppet fans, go see them. To me, Treasure Island was like, okay, it's a fun take on a classic thing. So I, I believe... The Muppets do really well with parodies of genres, like do a spy movie. Let's do a, I, I wrote a Muppet space adventure 20, oh God, 25 years ago and uh, was going to get made. But then Sony took over the Muppet franchise and made uh, Star Gonzos, which became Muppets from space. So I think that's just a better use of them. But that's my opinion. You know, and I don't own them. I didn't well, own I them. Think, you know, with the, 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 the parody stuff. And also, I think that there's an, Perhaps in the last decade or so, there's been a little bit of the bite taken out of the Muppets. I think that the the well, core Disney, them- yeah, Disney wants them to be safe. They then, but then they did that ABC show, which made them like snarky, and didn't you know? I mean, some like, people liked it, but I think the bite came out of they weren't edgy in a weird way. They were edgy in like you know, Fozzie's a kleptomaniac and Piggy's just a raging biatch, and. There wasn't. They've lost the charm and the silliness. In my, in right. My this book. is the point. It's a. It's a. It's a vaudeville. The group right. of vaudeville performers. You know. Right. To me, Monty Python, like Monty Python, did Life of Brian and did uh, Holy Grail, 
that to me is perfect. You get these funny characters put into this world and we're going to see a new take on it. If you did a, you know, and I've, I've written a haunted house movie, a Ghostbusters Muppet movie, a, a sci-fi movie. Uh, Jerry Jewell and I were talking about a Western, but you put them in a genre we all know and love. And then, you know, or comic book movie, like with Marvel. And, and, yeah. and I think that expands the base as opposed to just playing to the base. It's like Star Trek two wrath of Khan is the number one movie with Star Trek fans. Star Trek four is the number one Star Trek movie of the original series because it appealed to everybody. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a deep cut of like, you had to know about Khan. You had to know this, you had to know that. It was like, Oh, they're in our world. That's fun. And I think the same thing with the Muppets of like, if you don't really care if Kermit and Piggy are married or not, if you don't know that Lou Zealand, you know, names his fish, those movies just kind of like, Oh, okay. Like it doesn't appeal to a broader audience. So the stuff I, I want to do is, Go, hey, it's the Muppets make fun of blah. Yeah. Well, like, one of the things that is most memorable to me is that uh, the Star Wars stuff where Gonzo is Darth Vader. Yeah. Well, and, uh, Muppets in Space, we we did, I'm going to spill the beans, we did two Pigs in Space shorts that were Star Wars parodies. And Mark Hamill was going to be in everything, and Lucasfilm said, no, you can't. Oh, and I'm no. Like, what do you mean we can't? Well, because Disney had just bought Lucasfilm. We we're going to roll it out right around the <clears throat> time as uh the first jj one uh force awakens yeah and and i called howard rothman because i knew him when he was still there because we'd worked at lucasfilm back in the 80s and he was still with it and i said why won't you allow us i mean first of all i was like they have no right disney owns both we can do it it's it's parody and he said we just don't want people to think that star wars we want kids to think star wars is funny which is the same reason why they killed the um the seth green stuff they were doing there was a whole animated star wars uh, show that was getting developed or was in production when disney bought it and uh lucasfilm and they killed it so the same thing with the muppets they didn't want people to think it was funny but we we did gonzo as uh, reprised his role as a uh, dark helmet or no that was a uh, space balls what do you call him uh darth vader what's that well vader. darth vader but i forgot what we called him dark nader okay dark oh yeah darth nader yeah, and Luke was Luke Skyhopper, and and Piggy yeah. was Princess Leia, and and we did two parodies of that. Yeah, so we kind of brought back, and Mark was going to be in it, but as Mark, not as Luke Skywalker. And yeah, um, we shot. We ended up taking Mark out and shooting him anyway, but they've never aired because uh, Lucasfilm said you can't, and and obviously Disney doesn't want to piss off the eight hundred pound gorilla. Mm. So that kind of bummed me out. But like exactly that, I, I think because we did shoot three pigs in space. <laughs> and yes, the Star Wars Christmas special does exist. We should do the Muppets, <laughs> do their version of that, <laughs> with Miss Piggy as um, as uh, B. Arthur. B. Arthur, oh my God! <laughs> Over the years, uh, yeah, Lucasfilm has been notoriously tersilent about any hint of uh, not even a reverence, but just anything that's just remotely off the grid. Another friend of ours, uh, uh, Peter David, the author, he sat with us before. He said that. He had a line in a Star Wars novel that he wrote where he said, oh, uh, Lando giggled at this. And uh, no, 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 no. There's no giggling in Star Wars. That was a note he got. There's no giggling in Star Wars, regardless of the situation or the character or anything. So, yeah. But but, but this thing exists, right? Yeah, I can tell the jokes. So so, uh, Fozzie was Chewaka Waka. Pepe was Prawn Solo. Bunsen and Beaker were, uh, Beaker was R2 and Bunsen was 3PO, but I forgot, let's, I forgot what their nicknames were or what their robot names were. Piggy was Leia 
Was that it? I think that was mainly it. And I have a picture somewhere of, but my favorite was Fozzie's Chewaka Waka because they just brushed his must. They kind of brushed his hair and gave him a a, a bandolier of bananas. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and of course they come on the Star Trek or the the Swine Trek, and you know cause havoc. But it was really fun, and I was like, really, that's what you're gonna, you know, you're gonna kill that. So. If I ran the railroad, I would I would do more of that. I would have Muppet Marvel mashups, Muppet Star Wars mashups, Muppet Westerns, and kind of crank out, you know, about every year, every 18 months, and do them for like 30 million bucks. They don't, I mean, every TV movie yeah. I did, our budget, my biggest budget was 8 million. My lowest was 5 million. And you can do it for that. We did Wizard of Oz for $10 million as a musical with puppets. So, you know, even it's remarkable. That when you did you did all those videos that went viral. Yeah, all the all the YouTube videos, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, OK Go doing the Muppet um, theme song. Uh, my, one of my favorites is Stand by Me with Carl, Big Mean Carl and the Bunnies. If you haven't seen it, it's my sense of humor. <laughs> well, the Muppets used to blow each other up. That's the other thing. Uh, yes, people were like so precious. On there's there's a, a large group of fans who think that they're somehow like David and Goliath. That they're that they represent good, solid religious morals and the Muppets shouldn't, you know, and I'm like, they're not anti anything, but they're inclusive. You know, the Muppets wouldn't kick someone out for being a weirdo or being different. They, they, they're inclusive of everybody. So people are like, Oh, the Muppets would not, you know, that's, they would never be mean or say anything on tour. It's like, no, they used to blow each other up. I mean, uh, and, and that was, that was the thing about it as a kid, because there was, and Mike and I have talked to us before our late night rambles, like the original Muppet show there was a hint of danger. Anything could happen. Right. Anything. Right. Any, there could be any act that goes on up there. Anything could go sideways. And there was just that. Well, the anarchy, yeah. There was a Muppet right. anarchy that, and and partly it's due to the the format. The show was a wild and woolly, um, you know, vaudeville show where the movies. There it is. Classic Muppet stuff. So what happened was when the movies took off, particularly after the first one, because the Muppet movie, the first one's pretty anarchic. They go all over the place. There's crazy cameos. People forget, like, there's a, you know, Mel, Mel Brooks is a brain surgeon and, you know, a James Coburn is a bad guy in a Western saloon, like all these different environments. Mm -hmm. And they were parodies of genres. But it had a sweetness and a heart to it, which you obviously need. But then the movies became like, are Piggy and Kermit get married? And then Caper was probably the most classic Hollywood movie parodying caper movie, you know, but yeah. with big musical numbers. And then Take Manhattan was a bit smaller and was kind of a mess. I and mean, it just sort of ends with this wedding thing. So I was like, great. Piggy and Kermit married, we can kill that story. Now well, the fans really love that. But the problem is the fan base isn't that big. I think the rest of the world doesn't care. I think they want to see. Well, I think you, like, nailed it, you nailed it earlier when you talk about Star Trek. I'm a, you know, a huge Star Trek fan love Star Trek and you're right Star Trek 2 is the best Star Trek movie if you're a Star Trek fan but everyone I know who isn't a Star Trek fan saw Star Trek 4 right now exactly. you can talk about undiscovered country Star Trek 6 all you want but I saw it right except the fans and, and but, look the, the other thing I always say about the Muppets and I've been in arguments with the development executives I said the Muppets are the circus coming to town you don't go to the circus and go oh I want to know what 
the tightrope girl thinks about that clown because they used to date, but you're like, no, I want to see things blow up and lions not eat people. And, and the Muppet movie, you don't go like, I want to learn valuable lessons about human relationships. You want to see something that's fun. I mean, Muppet Treasure Island is exactly what I think a Muppet movie should be. It's chaotic. It's nutty. It follows a story. It doesn't have to be a, um, a classic literature tale, though it helps because then you can kind of make fun of something people already know. But yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, again, this is my two cents. And I know Jim was never precious about the Muppets. He wanted them well, to be In the first movie, uh, Robin goes to Kermit, you know, is this how it really happened? And Kermit's basically like, eh, you know, eh, sort of. You know, no. you're taking license. Yeah, and they were very loose about canon. Now there's Muppet canon. Oh, Kermit would never do that. Kermit, Kermit said this once, so it has to be, you know. Yeah, 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 it's just like, trust me, I'm a comic continuity canon nerd, and right. I'm just like, you can't apply that to the Muppets. I mean, <laughs> well, it's no, like, like you said before, it's like it's it's like it's like applying it to a Monty Python movie. Oh no, right. no, no, no! And, 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 and they wouldn't do this in Life of Brian because right. Graham Chapman's character wouldn't have. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's you're right. there for the enter- they strictly are entertainment. If if you're trying to tell a valuable lesson, I mean, obviously there has to be a moral or, or some kind of core. But it's really people go to see the circus. They want to see crazy stuff. I mean, the thing the thing that people most talked about in the second month or first or second month was the Kermit riding a bicycle and then everyone riding a bicycles in Take Man or is it Manhattan or um yeah, not Caper. But when there's like 20 Muppets on bicycles. Yeah. You know if the biggest thing people talk about is people characters riding bicycles, it's not about the story as much. And Caper, um, Caper, there's no, I mean, Caper can't be in any continuity. It's, and that's, you know, early enough. It's just tell a good story. Take the characters, tell a good story. But have Move fun. With it. In other words, oh, puppets yeah. sitting around talking is death. I mean, Frank Oz would say that too much talka talka. Let's, you know, boil it down and have them. He said, Frank, what an amazing treasure trove of good advice was. The funniest thing in the world is watching a puppet think, because that's when they come alive. When Kermit's like, hmm, you know, reacting to something. I mean, Kermit was a great reactor. If you didn't have Kermit, it would just be puppets screaming, yelling, and jumping around. Mm -hmm. But having someone go, ah, that's crazy, you know, it grounds it and makes you go, okay, I get that he thinks it's crazy. So it's a good format. Yeah, I just... And the nice, the good news is, I don't mean to sound super negative about them. This the, the new division that's now running the Muppets, which have only had it for a year. They're part of Imag- uh, Imagineering now. They're first of all, the two main people are from Australian England, so they're already kind of have more of a love for the characters than a lot of Americans do. Cool. Um, that's just cultural. They they appreciated the nuttiness more, and and so they're really trying to kind of get back to what at least more what I'm saying is not let's do a, a rom-com with Kermit and Piggy, but let's do something, you know, fun and crazy and wild and have that element, but still have a good story. So I, I my, my hopes are up. It's just with this co I mean, we were going to do a, a, we were working on a TV series and a, a TV movie or a special for Disney plus when uh, COVID shut ta- everything down. Well, hopefully we can so get if back. Everyone sends me a hundred dollars. And, <laughs> That I can make sure that'll happen in the next 10 years. That's all. Everybody, uh, email and write. KurtThatcher.com, just buy. 
$100 worth of stuff. You'll get a picture. You'll get some advice. I am doing some figures. What's the, yeah. I, I am doing figures. I'm doing uh, I'm doing consulting on scripts and things. I know we're over time, so I'll probably shut up. But uh, if you go to we're the good, website, it's uh, okay. Well, no, 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 no. We 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 go we go forever. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> we go as long as you want. Okay. So I am doing consulting on. Uh, I've had uh, probably ten or twelve people sending me uh, scripts or outlines for shows or just shooting the breeze with me about developing because I love one of the things that Jim would do is he'd have these group meetings where he'd get 10 or 12 of us and puppet builders and writers and directors and, you know, uh, the art department and we'd brainstorm ideas. And that was it. It was just a, a game of hot potato with ideas and just, there was no bad ideas. It was just, and, and I miss that because it doesn't really happen. Disney probably does it with executives, but, and once in a while, when something's greenlit, we'll, we'll do that, but it's like for a day or half a day. We'll all sit around and go, okay, we're gonna do this show. Let's all talk about it. Okay, time's up. No, we're not going to pay you anymore. So, <laughs> but we'll, you know, the exact we'll take it from here. Or Jim would have it for like a three day. The, the company would have these five day charrettes, they call them, where you get together every day and brainstorm all day and they'd provide lunch and it was great. And I think I miss that. So I'm, I'm selling that as a, as a, uh, a veteran of brainstorming with some pretty creative people brainstorming anyone's idea. I'm talking to someone this, this week, uh, this Friday about a documentary. On a, on a particular uh, political subject to just brainstorm with them. It's not about yeah. puppets. I mean, it can be, it can be puppets or comedy mm-hmm. or whatever, but it can be about anything. It's just a, a creative sounding board. Yeah. Um, having done it for, for 40 years. Uh, so that's the other thing besides buying, you know, autographs or autographed Funko pops and some artwork. Uh, you can also hire me as a consultant for half an hour, an hour and a dance partner, but that's, you know, you have to be in LA and it's pretty pricey. And a fashion consultant. Fashion consultant, yes. I will look at your Hawaiian shirt and go. And uh, he, and you'll judge their tiki collection. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I got the thumbs up. You match the background, Patty, so you get extra points for that. Yeah, that was what I said, yeah. <laughs> so I'll consult about tobacco, uh, various pipe tobaccos. Mm-hmm. But the whole like the matter is, again, you, you've had this extraordinary career. And again, like at the very beginning, you know production. So the nice thing is not only can you write, but you could also help guide people because we all know when people try their hand at screenwriting and stuff, they always go too big. They want to write a gargantuan thing that's going to be budgeted at $3 billion, which is never going to happen. So I imagine you give them a little insight to try to bring it down to a realistic, sellable property. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of baked into when I'm writing, too, is you bring along your production experience going, I always say, Having Kermit run down the stairs and pick up the phone is three hours to shoot it. But if you say Kermit finishes running down the stairs and we cut to the phone in his hand, you know, it, it, suddenly yeah. you can do that in half an hour. So it's, I mean, and that's the other part of it. I can provide production. I don't know, just advice. I'm sure. like Lucy. I'm Lucy and Charlie Brown, you know, psychiatric advice. <laughs> 25 cents. Or you can just ask me questions about stuff that you don't want to publicly ask me. Bob West says, take my money. Thank you, Bob. Are you a millionaire? Do you have a, a gorgeous sister who's a millionaire who's looking to get married and support the arts? Well, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you know or if our audience knows too. Uh, that's Bob West. He uh, he did the, he's also done some puppeteering work as well. He was the voice of a character called Barney the Dinosaur, which some of our audience I may met, remember. <laughs> I met Bob at uh, at GalaxyCon. Yes, in uh, in Louisville, Louisville. I love Louisville, by the way. What a great city! 
There he is. That's Bob. And yeah, Bob. And and that was actually kind of his side gig. Bob's main job now is graphic design work. Does a lot yeah. of uh, titles and stuff, TV and whatnot. So like I said, he ran, we ran the little earlier. He did the ABC Muppets uh, show in the 90s. And we go to the same barber. Oh, I saw that. I didn't re- I didn't make the connection. I'm sorry, Bob. I know yeah. I met you that high, but uh, oh, that's very cool. And I love your quote about the Star Wars Christmas special. <laughs> yes. Well, that was made in 1978, I guess. I, uh, yeah, at this point, just drop it off. I've always said, bring in the guys from Mystery Science Theater to do a riff track on it and just, just it's yeah. let it loose. Well, they probably could. I mean, on the YouTube thing. I don't they know are, they, already, on, they I already have. I'm hell bent, no, no, I'm hell bent on the Muppets Star Wars Christmas special. There you, you go. Know, with, uh, you know, Miss Piggy doing the Arthur's role right. and Fozzie doing, uh, you know, Chewbacca and. Uh, <laughs> That's right. But who do we get for Lumpy and Nala? Oh Lumpy. God! Lumpy. George has a, George has a sense of humor. I will say that. In fact, that's one of the things I find missing in the in the in the later Star Wars films. The prequels had it, but it was it was a little unwieldy. But I think they lost some of the charm of the first, particularly the first two, with the humor, just in the the silliness of it. You know, I mean, it wasn't played silly. But when you put a character in a situation, you know, like Minox or, you know, uh, whatever. It, it, and a lot of the humor came from, you know, 3PO and, and uh, Han Solo just being like, never tell me the odds. I mean, it's funny. It's not comedy, but it's funny. And I think they, they started taking themselves too seriously. It's my biggest beef with Jim Cameron movies. There's not a sense of humor anywhere, except in Aliens, Bill Paxton. Oh, you guys, game over, man. Yeah, we just got our asses kicked. That's the point in the movie. You're like, yes, somebody's saying what a normal person would say. Yeah. Joe yeah. <laughs> Elliott, uh, Jim Cameron, you know, he's what, uh, filming f- uh, two through five of Avatar? I don't know. He's, oh, he's just, yeah, I guess he's decided I'm just going to make them all and retire. <laughs> no, I love his movies. But you're like, Jesus, nobody, you know, even in uh, Avatar, nobody goes, Jesus Christ, these guys are tall and they're blue. I mean, you know, just somebody kind of state the obvious. So I think we we have uh, gone. <laughs> we, we've kept you long enough. We're dissing on Avatar. All right. Yeah, well, we better, we better go before we get in trouble. <laughs> I, I, the, the joke about Avatar is it's made the most money and nobody can remember a damn thing about it. I no, And nobody's a huge fan. Like there are people who are huge fans of Star Trek, Star Wars, James Bond, Muppets, whatever. You find me one person who's a rabid fan of Avatar. But weren't there some that were like, I want to move there. There was like a whole psychological condition for like a year. People like, I I want to be there. And they were very melancholy. It was some weird. I mean, maybe it was just 100 people and they got a lot of press. I've I've never seen an Avatar cosplayer at any of the shows. And uh, I always tell tell everybody, like, ask Mattel about how well uh, Avatar did. Because they couldn't give those toys away. Wow. Well, there you go. I think that's where we'll end on. All right. So, didn't do it right. <laughs> so KirkThatcher.com. Yes, get, your, get your brainstorming sessions, your autographs, your Funko Pops. Yes. And and uh, just general bad advice about life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll have to do this again. I would love to. I hope to see everyone in Louisville and Florida whenever whenever we're all back and, and able to actually be in the same room. I, I love Carly Hopefully soon. And uh, is there anything uh, else anybody wants to say, Patty? You got anything? 
All right. Thank All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Enjoyed it in. Thanks for those great questions, those comments. We will see you next week, if not sooner. Thank you for tuning in to GalaxyCon Talks Comics. We hope you'll join us again next time. And don't forget to follow us online at GalaxyCon Talks Comics dot com.